The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to a special creativity edition of Slate Money with a man called Derek. And <laughs> he does have a last name. There is a man called Derek here. We'll um, get to we, that. We, this is also Kathy O'Neill's last ever show sad. of Slate Money, so it's a little bit sad, but it's also happy because we have a man called Derek. Kathy, yes. welcome. Well, oh, 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 thanks. Hi. And and I'm Felix Hammond of Fusion, and Jordan Weissman of Slate is here. Hello, and we also have a man called Derek. Hello, I'm a man called Derek. And tell us, <laughs> surnamed Thompson, but uh, you're, you're, we can, we can do the Madonna thing if you want. You, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Slate Money with Derek. Derek, Derek looks a lot like Madonna. Oh my gosh! That's Derek, like this is the great thing That's about podcasting true. is nobody knows. Nobody knows, but it's true. <laughs> not, I look, Derek not. Thompson walked into the studio. I was like, "Oh my god, Madonna's just walked into the studio." <laughs> I asked her for her autograph. We Thank are you. going to be talking about Madonna actually on this awesome. show. We're going to talk about the economics of well. All bits of the creative world. We're going to talk about the movie industry, the book industry, the art world because I'm on the show and I can't really talk about creativity without wonking out about the art world. Um, but Derek, Derek, why are you the person that we're talking to about this? That's a good question. Uh, well, I wrote a book called ah. Hitmakers. Uh, Hitmakers, the science of popularity in an age of distraction. Um, I got the idea to write a book, uh, to write this book because I was writing about the economics of entertainment. Um, specifically, I was writing about the economics of the television industry. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting, just the single insight that kind of helped to inspire the book was this idea that the economic business models of cable versus broadcast helped to explain why some shows run cable and why some shows run broadcast. Um, that, for example, uh, the fact that HBO was subscription only, no advertising, meant that it could take these enormous risks and not have to optimize for sort of per unit attention, whereas the broadcasting model really was monetized through advertising, which means it had to maximize the number of people who were watching in each hour. So HBO could take a lot of the risks, for example, same with Showtime or Netflix, uh, Fox and NBC and, and CBS had to maximize for audience. And as a result, all of the Emmy shows, all the status shows, um, all the shows that we uh, praise for their quality were going toward uh, the first business model and the shows that were actually succeeding in getting a lot of people to watch them, say Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, uh, were going to broadcast. So that was just this little thing that, that I was writing about and uh, it, it got me onto this book about the the psychology and economics of, of cultural markets. So, okay, so let's start here. I mean, we may as well start with this whole television thing. One of the things which you have in the book is an explanation which I'd never really thought about before, but kind of like the minute that you wrote it down, I was like, oh, oh, right, shit. Um, of why CNN only seems to be capable yes. of broadcasting one news story per day. Yeah, so this <laughs> this 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 actually this story goes back to um one of the first columns I wrote for the Atlantic actually was about the business model of ESPN. How did ESPN build a entertainment sports monopoly? And I was lucky enough to talk to uh, its president John Skipper and he said, you know, we had a really big problem with SportsCenter in the early 2000s. We were covering bass fishing and we were covering poker and all sorts of these sports. We were essentially like a like a Greek diner. We were serving a thousand different kinds of food. And I realized that this is uh, Skipper realizing, sorry, I'll, I'll do Skipper voice. I realized that <laughs> um, 
what we should be is more like a steakhouse. We should do we should tell one or three stories all the time so that when the marginal viewer is thinking about tuning in, he or she will expect, oh, I'll see LeBron James when I tune in. I'll see Kobe Bryant. I'll see Tiger Woods. If I go to ESPN, I know what I'm getting. That would it, that would make them more likely to tune in. And so they concentrated all of their television around a handful of essentially hero franchises. They turned these sports stars into heroes. That's what CNN did with Donald Trump in 2015, 2016. Uh, Zucker went in explicitly saying, we are going to copy the Sports Center model. We are going stop, we're going to stop doing a thousand different programs on a thousand different topics. We're going to concentrate on the biggest stories of the day to get that marginal CNN viewer thinking, I'm interested in, in Donald Trump or I'm interested in the Supreme Court. I'm going to tune and, in. And the, and the big insight here is that even though CNN is running 24 hours a day, your typical CNN viewer is only going to be watching it for 10 minutes. And so Zucker just really wants those 10 minutes to be about the one story that viewer cares about, which is in, invariably going to be Trump. Yeah, that's like right. like I listen to the I listen to the radio in the morning. And if I listen to it long enough, I hear exactly the same thing a second time. And this th- is news radio. Yeah, yes. Or, or uh, top 40. Yeah. Okay. Like it's the exact same thing. Yeah. So I guess that's, is that it? Is it? Res- I mean, so you, you talked about this model of like the hero creating the hero. But is it also possible just like modeling the viewer and the viewer? What, they want to make sure the viewer, whenever they turn it on, sees the most important thing. Right. I, I, it's definitely a little bit of both. Um, uh, first of all, you know, one of the big ideas in the book is the sneaky power of familiarity. That as much as we want to think that we're creatures of novelty, 90% of the time we listen to music, we're listening to a song we've already heard. What are the biggest movies in America? They're all sequels, adaptations, and reboots. I think this is even true for our reading habits. We love reading new stories about topics in which we already have a bit of expertise or we, we have a, a, a prior uh, 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 bias or opinion. Is, is this why there are so many books coming out about Hooger right now that we just like, you oh, know, God. it's like, yes. I, need, I need to start collecting books. I, I've it's... actually done this myself. I just moved into a brutalist apartment building <laughs> and I now have have eight different brutalism books on my bookshelf because like I, if i've got one i want another H- huga is like the danish science of like comfort it's like scandinavian oh, like okay. surrounding themselves with like candles and furry blankets and stuff and like and once caps. and once you come across the huga thing you see it everywhere and it's just like <laughs> and and it's there, it's like five-year-olds playing soccer, you know? Like, no one thinks about this stuff. And but, then one person doesn't, everyone just flies. But wait, so, at the right, same time, so, it's like, but people actually do want new things, well, so, right? Like, that's exciting when they come up with new things. Yes, exactly. And that that is, like, the central tension that I'm getting at, certainly in the first half of the book, is that people are torn between what I call neophilia, a love of new things, and neophobia. We are all deeply conservative in our tastes. And so the trick for hit makers, the trick for people creating podcasts or journalism or movies or music is constantly, how do we create new things to create a new product line, to create a new franchise, while understanding that people's tastes are incredibly conservative. All they want is to be sort of introduced to something that's sneakily familiar. Um, And so I think that that tension very much, I think, lives at the heart of And I remember when, when we put out a little question to our listeners about a few months ago saying so what do you think about mixing up the slate money feed and putting some like new things in there and we got this overwhelming response saying no don't touch it <laughs> yeah. keep the formula <laughs> right. stick to us. the formula yeah. totally and this is uh, i mean you, you see this all the time with um with uh 
redesigns for web pages, right? Which is the your favorite web page is your favorite website is is redesigned. You absolutely hate it. It's terrible. You don't know where anything is. And then six months later, you get used to it, and maybe you get a peek somehow of the old design, and you're like, God, that's absolute crap. How in the world <laughs> did I go to that site every day? Like one of the, one of the themes you have kind of running through the book is that. Hitmaker's big secret is kind of take something familiar and just like one cool twist. That's it. That's like take take familiar and just add a twist to it. Which I, if you want to go back to Donald Trump, I think like the best example is probably like make Mexico pay for the wall. Mm-hmm. Like that was like you already knew they wanted to build a wall, but make Mexico pay for it was like his 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 quirk. And there were like some people who have tried to like codify this. Like there's this thing Maya that you talk about. Like do you want to like that that this acronym that kind of captures? Was that. this yours? Or was this someone else's? This was someone else's. Yeah. Um, and I'm about to give him give him credit. Uh, Raymond Lowy. Uh, was um, the father of industrial design. He's a French orphan who comes over to the U.S. in the late 19-teens. You don't need to storify this. I don't need to storify? Oh, no, <laughs> let me. Okay, Raymond Lowe is the father of industrial design. He designed, like, the 1950s, basically. He's the Steve Jobs of his era, like the cars, the trains, everything. And basically, he had a theory of why people like what they like called Maya, M-A-Y-A, most advanced yet acceptable. And it gets this very idea that people are torn between neophilia and neophobia, and they do like familiar things, but they get tired of realizing that they're doing the same thing over and over again. So they need a new product that sort of reintroduces that familiarity. So can you explain how to understand the current epidemic of superhero movies within the context of this Maya framework? Because... As far as I'm concerned, you know, Iron Man 14, there's nothing advanced about it. Well, I, so what's really interesting to me about- Deadpool. Deadpool is actually the best example. Right, right, right yeah. exactly. Uh, so th- there's two things that are happening here. First, the movie industry has realized that the number of tickets that people buy per year has fallen from, you know, about 30 uh, in the 1950s to about four per year today. So the same way that people are only tuning into CNN for 10 minutes a day, people are only tuning in, so to speak, to the movie industry for like four weekends a year. As a result, there's a really, really high bar to getting their attention. And how do you get someone's attention? You have to introduce something that's a little bit familiar. So a lot of people, I think, are just waiting on their favorite storylines to reappear year after year. I'm only going to wait until the next Star Wars movie comes out. I'm going to wait till Iron Man comes out. I think what they're doing is they're binge watching the, you know, the Avengers in much the same way that we'll binge watch uh, Game of Thrones or something like that, um, you just have to like wait between episodes. Wait between binges? And actually, what's funny about that is I, I brought up with a, a movie executive. I was like, does it piss you off when people are like, all the good stories have moved to television and the movies are just a franchise sequel and like, you know, fran- a hat business? And he was like, what pisses me off actually is that you know, what is television? Television is an hour of entertainment plus a hundred sequels. Like that's what a television show is. It's just sequels. So when we see it, we, sequels on television, we call episodes, we praise them for their genius and sequels in movies, we call franchises and we say that they're stupid. But in fact, at the same time as the, just as television has become more like the movies in terms of its cinematic pes, uh, sort of panache, the movies have become more like television. They've understood that all people want is just to see new episodes of their favorite characters. And just like you said, they're essentially just waiting for their favorite characters to reappear I'm gonna, in the next year I'm and the year after. I have a totally different theory about this. Okay. My, I mean, which I'm, I would like you to tear apart. But like my theory is that what's, what's really happening is that these movie, the people who decide which movies to produce, right? The producers, I guess they're called. Um, <laughs> they are like conservative and they don't want to take big chances. And they so they what they do is they opt locally optimize. They're like, 
oh, well, people aren't going to movies, so we're going to we're going to give them something that probably will bring a few more people to a movie than a risky thing that we would do. But in the meantime, people like me would like love to go to the movie every Friday night, but the movies suck because they're all sequels. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, in, in other words, you have to literally break out of this mold, stop locali- like locally optimizing and really start making great movies. That's e- not going to happen. Everything that you said is true. And I think almost every single movie executive off the record would agree that what you're saying is true. The problem is the feedback loop. And the feedback loop is you make a super original movie and nobody sees it. And that creates an enormous chilling effect on equally original movies in that genre. It is riskier, so, but it's probably the payoff is is bigger on, on expectation. I'm guessing. I, I wish that were true. So, no, and, I mean, and the, like reason the, 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 the biggest payoff is on Star Wars. You can yeah. never get a bigger payoff yeah. than you get on and, Star Wars. And Star Wars is the thing I see when but it comes here's, to But here's yeah. the question, and just one last question in this segment, which is, what has changed since 1999. I have this idea in my head that 1999 was like the golden year for movies. There were so many amazing movies came out there. Super original movies. I mean, I don't know, like Being John Malkovich or something like that. Awesome stuff which like just came out of left field and really delighted people. What is true today that was not true then? A couple of things. First of all, the domestic market for movies has absolutely flatlined. So the entire growth sector for Hollywood is overseas. And what translates overseas? Is it Spike Jones movies? Nope. It's explosions. It's incredibly familiar heroes. It's storylines that have already been translated into Mandarin so they don't have to re-educate people and like the irony of Woody Allen and Spike Jones uh, uh, dialogue and, and screenplays. So that, that's, that's an enormously important thing. The other thing that's happened is that everybody has learned Disney's playbook and realized that the business of Hollywood is in merchandising. And it's just so much easier. I mean, tr- imagine trying to merchandise being John Malkovich. It's almost funny to imagine. Like, <laughs> what the hell would that look I've like? a little toy New Jersey turnpike. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. being John Malkovich, um, like an amusement park ride would be like going to like the floor that's only three feet tall. Where it's like, exactly. this is fun. I'm on a really crappy floor. And so the, yeah, the way to you know, you make how much money from, from Disney World? Like $150 per person. You make how much money from the movies in the opening weekend? Maybe only five nets to the studio. The future of this business model um, is in merchandising these films, so not depressing. the artwork itself. Oh my God. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. But Derek, you have written, uh, I mean, this is one of the more... um sort of self-aware books out there. There's, there's a lot of kind of weird sort of breaking of the fourth wall and going, yeah, I'm trying to write a hit book here going on in your book. <laughs> so why not just take that sort of head on? Let's talk a little bit about the economics of the book publishing industry because this really fascinates me. And as someone who's had a book agent for a decade but has never written a book, um, I can tell you that what my book agent tells me is that if you earn out your advance, you've got a crap agent. Basically, the idea <laughs> is that all all publishers just they publish a whole bunch of books 
and most of them will basically fail and that's how it works and then once in the blue moon you'll get this mega hit which pays for everything else right that's exactly so it's it's the portfolio model for venture capitalists too right you bet on a hundred companies and 98 of them are absolutely uh, terrible and then two of them are you know facebook and and airbnb and then you're uh, peter thiel um so one one thing to i think to, to spell out for for listeners is probably you know you said sell out your advance so like what does that mean um uh the way that uh being a book writer works with having uh I'll, well i'll tell i'll tell my story very briefly and hope that it's instructive yeah because i want to know how much of an advance you got that's not going to happen um, <laughs> <laughs> really good really good effort <laughs> um, so I had a couple ideas for, for books that were terrible. I got an agent who said, maybe you should write a book about sort of the economics and psychology of cultural markets. I wrote a proposal that was uh, 20,000 words long. It's basically uh, a, a business plan for a book, essentially, um, that says, I promise to do this. I promise to do that. It's sent out to the publishers, uh, to the imprints, and imprint uh, is the official name for the tiny little character you see at the bottom of a spine on the book. Um, Each of the publishing houses, like Penguin or Random House, have an imprint. and the imprints will either say, uh, this proposal's terrible, or I, I like this proposal, we'll, we'll talk about it, we'll do a, a bid. They bid on it, and they finally offer an advance. Um, with the advance, a certain amount of money, uh, let's say it's $10,000, just to make it a, a round number. With $10,000, it's paid out in four bits, uh, first upon signing, uh, second quarter upon uh, turning in the manuscript, third quarter for uh, getting the hardcover published, fourth quarter uh, for uh, getting the paperback. Um, you have to, if if the book doesn't sell as much as the publisher thinks it's going to sell, essentially sell out its advance, um, then there are no royalties for the author. As you said, it's only if the book is super successful that you get to see those royalties. And for the vast majority of authors, you know, you, you don't get the royalty and it's arguable that, you know, you hopefully shouldn't, that you're, that you got paid more than you're worth. <laughs> Isn't that the dream of, of every, you know, worker? Um, but the, but the economics of the royalties, I mean, this kind of implies that the that the publishers are stupid if the authors don't earn out their advance. And there are two reasons why they're not. Um, one reason is that they actually make money even if you don't earn out your advance because of the economics of the book publishing industry. Um, but the other the other reason is that when they are giving an advance, what they're not doing is anticipating how many books are going to sell and then giving you an advance equal to the number of books they think they're going to sell, you know, divided by the amount they they pay you per book. Um, they're actually perfectly happy giving you more than that because there's this very fat right tail being the upside risk. And one of the fascinating things about this entire discussion is that when you talk about risk in the context of books or in music or any other creative f- field, the risk is almost all to the upside. The downside risk is very finite. You can sell zero. But the upside risk is infinite. There's like literally no end to how much you can sell. There's a, 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 there's a quote from Jeff Bezos in the book that, that gets exact to this point. He says, people talk about hitting home runs in business, uh, but they should stop doing that because home runs have a truncated outcome distribution. <laughs> you can only score four runs with a home run. In business, you can score a thousand runs, a million runs. I mean, the iPhone scored a billion runs. like, And so that's the upside of, of taking enormous risks in some of these markets is that, as you said, there's a floor but no ceiling. Yeah. I mean, I just want to, I, I just wrote a book. So I just want right. to correct one thing you said, which is they don't give you the second 
part of your advance when you turn in your manuscript. They give you the second part of your advance when they accept your manuscript, which uh-huh. is a lot. There's a lot of yes. difference. In those, <laughs> yes. There's a space yes. between those two things. I also want to say, like, having gone through this entire thing, um, it's awful. It is really, really awful. It's an awful experience for the writer. Um, and it's something I would never recommend to anyone, even though my book was extremely successful. Um, it still hasn't covered my advance. And there's, you know, you, that's what it means. I have a good agent. That's true. But it also is pressure well, for, for the writer from the publishing house. They want me to do all sorts of things in order to meet that target because they care about that. Of course. And if you want to write a second book, um, and you want a good advance for the second book, you better have paid back for that first book. So there's this whole economics of yeah, the not just the first to, book, the but the trick is to sign book. your second book contract one day before your first book comes out. I yeah, think that's, that's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. About why they overpay, though, also. I think part of this is because it's an auction system, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's there's a well-known phenomenon. It's the winner's curse in auctions. Yeah. That, like, when you have lots of people bidding on something, and if you have an even a, a decent book proposal, you're going to have multiple bidders. Um, it's whoever most overestimates the value of that product is going to win and so by definition whoever is most likely to lose money on it is most likely to actually get it so that's i i think i, I you know it's kind of built into the whole model of the industry and of course, so I that's the best case scenario like a lot of people just never get paid for their and they self-publish on amazon or something and right and then it's all royalties it's all just making money off the books that you sell yeah but right. then you probably don't get very much royalties when it, i mean like let's face it like one of the great things about getting because you got published with penguin right mm-hmm. i was with crown random house and they have an enormous machine, a marketing machine, right? If they're going to pay for a big advance, they're also going to put your their marketing machine behind you. And that's a huge push. But there, but let's just, you know, since this is we love our edge cases and our outliers on this show, um, there is that amazing story of the self-publishing, you know, phenomenon known as Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. Yes. Right. Which was just like, you know... Once you have a huge hit, which is self-published, then at that point you can like, you know, you can, it will eventually get picked up by a publisher, but boy, are they going to pay through the nose for it. Yeah. Yeah. And and Fifty Shades of Grey is is so interesting. Um, and I, I talk about it at length in, in um, toward the end of my book, I, I talked to the, I talked to the author, I talked to E.L. James, I talked to the the publisher and a couple people in the story. And, you know, one of my, th- one of the theories that I have about Fifty Shades, which I think is understood sometimes about sort of cultural blockbusters is that my theory is that it didn't actually you know go viral the way that most people think it went viral um she was a superstar on fanfiction.net which is this website that practically nobody has heard of but might be the most popular erotic website for women in the world um it's say it again what exactly (laughs) fanfiction.net so so this started as twilight fanfiction right exactly it started as twilight fanfiction she has millions by one estimate maybe five or six million readers tens of thousands of commenters reading this work in historical precedent here or, or just like present present? Did she have millions of followers before yes. she published this? Yes, yeah. that's, okay. that's, what's so, that's what's so unknown. That's the story that, that, that hasn't been uh, as widely reported is that she was already this blockbuster phenomenon. So she phenomenon. had a marketing machine. I, right. I call, her, I call her in the book, I say it's like a dark broadcaster. Mm-hmm. It's someone who essentially has broadcast power, but we can't measure it effectively. We as like the media, the publishing world or Hollywood can't measure it effectively. So she had this massive broadcast power that couldn't be measured by the publishers because he wasn't selling she wasn't selling books yet. And so when she finally did go to this small little Australian uh, publishing uh, company to, to sort of translate this very popular work into an ebook, a lot of these people followed her. And then when Random House finally gave her 
uh, all of this money in order to uh, uh, actually publish with an American uh, official publishing house, um, then that's when it really exploded and she got on the cover of you know Time Magazine and Good Morning America and everything else. So the publishing industry is a bit like the music industry. You have these intermediary publishers. Um, you have the, the, the fans, the listeners, the readers who pay money for the product. You have the creators, the writers, the artists who create the product. And then in between, you have the record labels or the publishing houses. What we have seen in the music industry, and we can talk about this in the next segment, is that those intermediaries getting squeezed and the economics really kind of getting pushed back out towards the creators, which is a good thing. Is there any evidence that the publishing houses are getting squeezed? Because it seems to me that they're not, that the authors are getting squeezed, if anything, more than the publishing houses are. So an interesting statistic is that the recorded music industry right now used to be $20 billion, used to be huge. Now it's $6 billion. The U.S. book market is $15 billion. So uh, there's going to be hits in there. That's an, It's an enormous tale, but there are some hits inside of there. And one reason you know, why these public, bu- publishing houses are successful is because it's a little bit oligopolistic. There's only like five really big ones, and it's a $15 billion pot. So there's just a lot of consumer interest that's that's just there. Um, so, so, yeah. So, but in terms of the advances like if i'm barack obama and i get a 20 million dollar advance for my book which is what the rumor is that he might get if he writes his white house memoir realistically the publisher is going to lose money on that right I think they probably will. That's an enormous. That's an enormous number of books sold. I mean, I don't know uh, how much. Uh, what was it? My life was that Bill Clinton's memoir yeah. sold, but you know, it wasn't. It wasn't like one of these books that was number one for you know half a year, which is essentially what you would need to to make back twenty million. Um, you know, one other really interesting thing about the book industry, which that I think. Um, where I think it could it should be more like the movie industry is that you know what happens if you write a successful book in the business technology sort of space you can give talks about it you can give speeches about it and how much of that speaking revenue does the publisher get absolutely zero they get none of it so in a way you could say that they're not capturing the long tail risk of the success of certain business titles that the authors monetize on the speaking circuit and i, I was actually giving like a talk at, at at penguin about this book where they said um uh, all right well you just wrote this book about cultural markets tell us what to do how to be a better business and i was like well this isn't going to be very good for me and i i apologize to all the future writers that i might be screwing over but you know when disney makes a a hit movie then it owns the theme park and it owns the shirts and it owns the you know Star Wars betting. But when one of your writers has a hit business book, you get none of the speaking revenues. You get none of the the, the merchandization of the original product. You're a traitor, and you yeah. should. <laughs> <laughs> and no, but, th- but this is why it's it's good for for authors. This is this, or how I at least justified it to myself as being good for authors is that um, I said you should overpay to capture a little bit of this long tail risk, which means that business writers of the future might get paid even a little bit more, um, but just the the, the, but just the, the business publishing, writers. <laughs> but the publishing uh, house would get a certain segment of their future speaking. Well, that brings me up with a question I have about, you know, your book, Hitmakers. If, if I'm a, an aspiring writer, am I going to find like how to make my book a hit from your book? Um, I try to avoid what I considered like explicit formulas. There's a hundred percent some how to self help 
guidelines in here, even though predominantly I wanted this to be a story-driven book and an analysis-driven book. I mean, in particular, the story about like Fifty Shades of Grey seems like impossible to replicate, right? And and I think it's my job as an honest journalist to to not give people the false hope as to say, read my book and you'll be, there's a formula for you know becoming the next Fifty Shades of Grey. Reasonably speaking, there is no next Fifty Shades of Grey. It's, it's a comet. It's an asteroid. It's the Donald Trump of publishing. It happens once every century and there's no formula. And so you know what, what I've taken to saying now is like formulas are for garage door openers. Like punch in 2796 pound and you open the garage door. But like culture isn't a How garage door. How did you door. know my formula? <laughs> <laughs> I just randomly picked that out from stalking Felix for the last six months. Um, <laughs> but like culture is not a garage door and people aren't a garage door. Like there's no formula to success here, even, even though there are, I think, good academic research, good general principles and good rules. Did you hear about the, uh, the people that claim to have like the figured out the attributes for a best-selling book? Yeah, and how'd that book do? <laughs> <laughs> no offense, but like I mean, if, if you knew the formula, why in the world wouldn't you use it? Touche. Um, uh, <laughs> It, it, like, like I, I get this question so often that I just have had to develop a memorized answer to it, which is um, if I wanted to write a book uh, called The Formula that was about the formula for being successful, then I would have been selling snake oil like three years ago. Like if I was willing to lie to people about this kind of stuff, I wouldn't start with a book. I'd start with running for president. <laughs> Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. But let's talk a little bit about the music industry because I think everyone's fascinated by the music industry and it's changed a lot. As you said, the dollar size of the music industry, um, certainly in terms of people just paying for music, has shrunk a lot. Uh, The live music industry has been expanding enormously. Artists are finding non-record label related ways of funding themselves in very, in, in multitudinous different ways. And... In the age of Spotify, you can you have access to just this insane range of music which no one really had access to before. And yet, this is the paradox which I struggle with. In a world where more people are listening to a much broader range of music than ever before, that world also seems to be much more hit-driven and with many fewer like hit recording artists. How can you reconcile those two things? This is an awesome question, and here's my best guess. Um, what I think you're asking is, why is it the case that you can listen to an ever more diverse array of music, and yet some of the hit songs seem to be more dominant? Well, it's not just that. It's just that the number of hit songs seems to be going down, right? Um, well, actually, it, 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 it seems to be the case that uh, the power of hit songs is greater than it was before. Yes. Um, that hit, right. That, so there's... Right, fewer, longer lasting. The, the superstars yes. are more super than they used to be. And there are fewer superstars than they yeah. used to be. Yes. And they're bigger yes. than they used so to be. So I have... So here's my theory about this. Um, there's a, a psychological principle called social influence, uh, which is basically a fancy way of saying peer pressure. Um, it says that in a world with transparent taste, um, simply knowing what's popular is going to make you gravitate to those popular things. Uh, knowing what the best-selling mob 
is, means you uh, you bound your search for mops on Amazon by just going to buy the most popular mop. I think the same thing is happening for cultural products. Uh, tastes are transparent now, which means it's very easy to see uh, what the best selling or best most listened to hip hop song is or movie or book. And as a result, I think people are clustering. Um, they are uh, a little bit uh, scared of the sheer abundance of options that they have. Uh, they feel a little bit of the pinch of the paradox of choice. And as a result, they're beginning their search by saying, all right, well, what's already popular? I'll begin there. And that because of the transparency of cultural markets right now, plus this element of social influence, uh, you're seeing uh, consumers uh, cluster around the And you're also you seeing products. fewer intermediary tastemakers like it used to be that radio stations could basically create hits and now because it has become that that job has become outsourced to everyone like, who's sharing what they're listening to on facebook you know because the only way i don't know if this is still true but it used to be that the only way you could even log into spotify was if you had a space facebook account you were kind of forced to chain to forced to share what you were listening to and because of that you it's almost impossible for someone to come along and say, you should listen to this, you should listen to that. Well, I think that you actually, you actually kind of make a little bit of the opposite point in your book is that you still have these broadcast channels like radio and you know Spotify playlists that actually do have an enormous impact that you do have these, you know, and this is a theme for every industry in your book is that you have these broadcasters and as long as they control the, some sort of large platforms, they really are still influential. And uh, I'm going to jump in here because yeah. al along those same lines, I'm wondering to what extent the recommendation algorithms that like <laughs> on, you know, whatever Pandora or, or what have you are actually influencing this too, because I'm imagining building one of these recommending algorithms and there are all these songs that no one hates mm -hmm. and they're like, they're the popular songs. Or another way of saying that is it gets popular. People get big and popular because they make music that is not very hateable. And they, they get sort of jammed into those. Right. So what you want to do is you want to create the, the secret to success in the music industry is to create a song which gets recommended in as many different algorithms as possible. Yes. <laughs> That's Basically a great way to, to think everyone. about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Hack the algorithms. Um, yeah, I would say two things. First, uh, to, to Jordan's point, which I think is, is totally well taken. I think definitely a theme of the book is that the broadcast power has been democratized, that it used to just be FM radio stations, television stations, movies maybe that had the ability to launch a hit song. But now we see songs launching from, quote, the bottom, from a Sean Parker playlist, from uh, a mannequin challenge uh, viral meme, um, from uh, a, you know, Ashton Kutcher's Twitter feed. This is how some top 10 songs are launched now, from uh, individuals that now have stolen broadcast power from the institution. So that's that's definitely happening. Um, the second thing that's really fascinating about, about the power of, of hit songs today is that a lot of this has to do with um, uh, the demise of the old collusion networks of the labels. So that, for example, for the vast majority of the Billboard Hot 100's existence, um, the labels could pay the radio stations to play certain songs and pay the DJs to tell Billboard, hey, this song's really popular. Or uh, because uh, music was scarce, when a record uh, store owner ran out of, say, Bruce Springsteen, he or she would tell Billboard, well, I'm out of Bruce Springsteen, so the most popular music that I have is basically ACDC. So scarcity and collusion would drive the Billboard Hot 100. But after 1991 and into the 2000s, Billboard A started measuring point-of-sales data, and B started measuring uh, more accurately uh, radio airplay. And since then, the 20 songs that have been on the Billboard Hot 
recorded the longest have all come out since 2000. So it turned out that as Billboard held a more perfect mirror to audience tastes, it turned out that we really do just want to hear the same songs over and over and over and over again. And in fact, this is one of the, you know, big unsung facts about the book industry is that the number one best-selling book every year for the history of the book industry has been the Bible. Yes. It's always the same book. And it doesn't even appear on the bestseller list because that would be the world's most boring bestseller list. Right. But uh, but people actually do like the stuff that they are familiar with and they listen to those songs and they buy those books over and over. Yeah, I'm just going to you... jump in here and object a little bit to the idea that just because we listen to it the most, it's the thing we like the most. I don't think any one person might not like it the most, but they're willing to listen to it. Just like it, it, the Bible is obviously bought a lot, but as I mean, and there's actually plenty of people that'll say that the Bible is their favorite book, Exception, especially Republican exception. politicians. I'm just saying, like, it's a proxy for not for for being willing to listen to it. It's not a proxy for this is my favorite song. I think that's I think that's totally fair, and I think that you know one of the things that I'm really fascinated about, and is a theme from your book as well, is measurements of popularity can determine culture. Um, that even the billboard changes in 1991 um, that more accurately measured point of sales data rather than just allow the record uh, store owners to lie to billboard. Uh, one thing that happened almost immediately is that um, uh, hair bands collapsed, their sales collapsed, and hip-hop and country soared up the charts because it turned out that when you actually measured what people were listening to, many more people who, the music fans actually preferred hip-hop and country, but it was the labels whose taste was conservative That's who funny. wanted to promote rock and roll and hair bands. Um, so again, yes, represent- Wait, hair bands are conservative? Apparently. Yeah. They're, they're White Conservative compared to NWA. I have like, to say, I mean, <laughs> wait, this is, this is a scandal of LIBOR-fixing proportions, right? Yeah. Basically, what you're talking about <laughs> is the LIBOR-fixing of the music industry. And I just want to know, years. who is going to pay those multi-billion dollar fines for fixing the Billboard 100? Well, they've already fixed it, right? I mean, there, there's been <laughs> enough payola scandals that I think that um, right, they, they've made their, their, uh, their LIBOR-equivalent payments. Uh, so I want to come back to this idea of that, that intermediaries are kind of gone, right? Or that they're breaking down. I, I feel like that's not really the case, though. It's that they're still extremely, extremely important that just the intermediaries have kind of diversified. And like, and I, I was hoping you could just talk a lot. Well, I mean, okay. So, and can you talk about it specifically with regard to yeah. my favorite recording artist, Taylor Swift? Yes, of course. Um, well, something interesting about, you know, Taylor Swift has an, a, uh, a label. Uh, she I owns her own label. Yeah. She owns her own label. Um, so she doesn't. She has recorded well, she's with Universal. A, no, she has. She has distribution, I think, with Universal. But she's also got Big Machine, and her father owns a a few percentage points of equity in it. But she does not own the whole thing. Um, so there, I was thinking about this. There are basically four big players in the music industry: um, the songwriters, obviously, write the songs; the publishers, uh, so called, because they used to sell the sheet music, but now they really handle royalties; the performers literally Taylor Swift, and then the labels, let's say Universal Republic. Um, and throughout, in the last century of music history, the balance of power has shifted really dramatically between these four actors. In the late 19th century, when the music business was literally like a paper business, people, there was no recorded music, people just wanted the sheet music to play on their piano at home. That was great for the publishers. Then along comes FM radio, and FM radio was established to pay out a lot of its royalties to the songwriters. Okay, now the songwriters are no longer impoverished. Then recorded music with vinyl and cassettes and CDs becomes this $20 billion business 
artists. Who gets the money from that? It's the labels. But then the recorded music industry collapses and performance uh, art, performance art, ha, performances begin to grow. The performers get the most money from that. But now as streaming starts coming along, how did they begin to organize the streaming uh, rights? so that it benefits the labels much, much more than it benefits anybody else. Spotify's revenue goes 60% to the labels, 7% to the artists. So in a weird way, because of streaming, the labels have made a bit of a comeback in recorded music, but the big right. growth industry and is, this is performances. And this is, and this is, I can highly recommend the David Byrne op-ed about this in the New York Times from about a year ago, where the deals between the labels and the and Spotify and Pandora are so opaque and confidential that I mean Spotify can say we pay a lot of money to these record labels and then it's just up to the record labels to pass that money on through to the artists and the record labels will never ever give an artist a proper accounting of how many streams they had and how and how that ca- then passes through to how much money they get. Even if you're David Byrne, they won't tell you. Yeah. Which is kind of astonishing. Yeah, that is astonishing. And um, and and this is why you have... It's funny, you, you kicked off this segment by talking about... Um, uh, you know, merchandising and, and uh, independent artists, I think, sort of going, like, performing in, in commercials and things like this. That used to be called selling out. When Michael Jackson did the Pepsi commercial, <laughs> people were like, what the hell are you doing? You have a Pepsi commercial. You're the yeah, biggest can, can star in the world. Can you imagine what Rihanna's career would be like if there was no selling out? It's one entire career of selling out, and it's glorious. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> selling out has itself sold out, right? Like, it's just, this is how you make money. You have you have to try to get your song on a commercial um, because you're not going to get any money from YouTube and Pandora and Spotify. The, the way to eat and get health insurance is to hope that Toyota pays you a bunch of money. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So I'm really psyched about this numbers round because this is this is somewhere where this is the factoids in this entire area of life are just brilliant. Derek, did you bring a number? My number is 51%. Um, immigrants uh, founded 51% of America's uh, unicorn companies, billion dollar companies. Um, I think this is a uh, a Rorschach stat. Uh, someone like Steve Bannon might look at this and say. Uh, immigrants are stealing our unicorns. Uh, they're stealing our billion-dollar companies. Others, I think, clearly would look at it and say, "Well, you know, if native-born Americans uh, would have invented Google anyway, uh, they would have invented Google." Although um, th- this is a slightly cunning stat because fifty-one percent of unicorn companies have at least one immigrant co-founder. Most of these companies have three plus co-founders so like the more co-founders you have per company the easier it is to get that number quite high yes i am i'm pro collaboration and uh, pro-immigrant with with this, um, with this i actually have a creativity number 
this week. Um, just because the num the the magnitude of these things is enormous. I was reading this week about the Sai Twombly estate. Um, Sai Twombly being a very good, famous artist, but not necessarily a household name, um, who sold most of his art over the course of his career to various people, and who and those people are now quite rich because. A, you needed to be rich to buy side Twombly's, but B, the, the value of those side Twombly's has gone up. And all of that is well and good. What's interesting is the leftovers. The, the paintings and drawings that he had left over when he died, he gave, he gave to this thing called the Cy Twombly Foundation. The Cy Twombly Foundation's assets are valued at $1.5 billion. Holy crap. So that's how much value just second-tier visual artists can create. Can I just say, be, I love Cy Twombly. Um, for those who don't know him, all of his art looks scribbles. like uh, scribbles. Um, <laughs> uh, looks like a very ingenious uh, child on acid. Um, and so what's interesting <laughs> is that he created he created a bit of, um, of confusion because uh, if his famous art looks like scribbles, then his non-famous art is still going to look like scribbles. And so his <laughs> non-famous and famous art probably look more alike than uh, many other artists. So and, that's and that's actually, what, what is it? we didn't really get into the economics of the, the fine art world, but it's absolutely true that the secret to success, to financial success in the art world is precisely that kind of fungibility. If you can create a body of work where any one piece is worth pretty much the same as a very similar piece, then you will be very successful in the art world. If you create a bunch of very unique pieces which aren't really fungible and there are maybe not so many of them, then you become less collectible and your financial success is so, much lower. So don't have a blue period if you're a modern artist. <laughs> or, or, or rather only have a blue period. <laughs> if you're going to go blue, right, you better it, Just oh. stick with blue. Do you remember that wonderful line in in Art School Confidential? Since we're talking about John Malkovich movies here, there's this yes. wonderful movie called Art School Confidential where he goes, I invented triangles. <laughs> Do you have any idea how long it took me to paint like this? 25 years. So what's your number, Jordan? My number is uh, 36%. 36, 36%. And it's going to take a little while to get to it, but it's a really it's a really depressing number and it, it's about higher education, which is something I haven't talked about a while on this show. Um, recently, uh, Donald Trump announced that Jerry Falwell Jr., head of Liberty University, was going to head a commission on higher education reform for the administration. Uh, so Kevin Carey from a well-known uh, guy from New America Foundation, writes in New York Times, started looking at uh, Liberty University's results, how well it does in training students, how well they do when they leave, what do they make. And one of the standout statistics is that after three years, only 36% of Liberty, stu Liberty students have paid down even $1 of principal on their student loans. Mm. Three years after they have left school, they've only 36 have managed to pay off any of what they have borrowed on their loans. This is a guy whose university essentially, you know, thrives off of federal funding and loading kids up with too much debt. And now he's going to be the one advising Trump on how to remake American education, apparently. Did you see Kevin Roos's tweet from his year at Liberty University where he was tweeting images of his of, the, of textbooks that he had from the school? One of them um, was a page, an, an FAQ about... Um, the veracity of uh, the Noah's Ark story. And one of the images has a picture of <laughs> oh, no. various figures walking up the plank into Noah's Ark. And the line under the picture says, humans 
and dinosaurs shown at scale. Because <laughs> if you are the sort of person who believes that the world is created in seven days and all everyone was created at the same time, you have to believe that humans existed at the same time as dinosaurs. So in the picture, there's a little human and a slightly bigger brontosaurus um, gazing into each other's eyes in the uh, the stern uh, of the ship. It's, it's, it's weird how these people don't make lots of money after they graduate. But... Odd. <laughs> yeah. I have a number. Uh, what's your number, Kathy? It's 88.4867%. That's a lot of significant digits. Well, fancy that you say that because I have two facts about this number. Uh, one is that uh, that percent of statistics are more precise than they are accurate. <laughs> and the second fact about that number is that that percent of statistics are made up on the spot to seem smart. I would, I, that, that's awesome and false, but awesome. <laughs> I, also, I just had to have a little math joke at the end of my <laughs> last episode. So, Kathy... Is is that your last ever number? That's my last. That's my last number. On which note? Yes. We are going to go out and cry. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm with beer. I'm going to cry into my beer. We will. You guys are welcome to join me. Remember you. <laughs> We're going to go out and get some beer. I I I urge you all out there listening to Slate Money to drink beer. Just in general, but especially this week because yeah. it's Kathy's last week. We will somehow soldier on you guys are going to be amazing i have every every faith in you next week actually we do have another wonderful non-fiction author the 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 one and only lee gallagher fortune magazine is going to come in and talk about one of those unicorns which one was it derek you know what she's just written about no, Derek has Derek no, has no Derek, Derek is not really <laughs> as plugged into the nonfiction book publishing world as, as he as Look, he might it's make a out. very it's a very onerous process when you come out with a book. Like you your head's down. <laughs> there are so, other books. What? So you're gonna have to you're gonna have to tune in <laughs> next week I to was find promised out. Be the only book in <laughs> <laughs> um, publisher. And Kathy, on your final week and in this creativity special edition, what should we play out with? Well, one of my favorite songs is First Day of My Life by Connor Oberst. We'll have to find out like how we manage to cope without Kathy, but we will do our very best with Lee and with the able help of Zach Dynastein, the producer of this show. Um, many thanks to him, to Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, the executive producers of all of Panoply, which is iTunes.com slash Panoply. Um, do keep your emails coming to slatemoney at slate.com. We will take Kathy off that list at some point, but probably not for a little while, just so that she gets to kibitz and and join in on our like weekly discussions about what to talk about. She'll be like, I'm not on the show, but this is what I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Don't unsubscribe because Kathy's not here. It's still going to be good. <laughs> I was blind before I met you And I don't know where I am, I don't know where I've been But I know where I want to go And so I thought I'd let you know Yeah, these things take forever I especially am slow It is Ryan here and I have a question for you What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.